We are so lucky to have another great singer-songwriter on with us tonight. One of the very best of his generation is the newest member of the Honky Tonk Time Machine. Without further ado, we welcome Radney Foster to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much, Glenn. Uh, that's mighty high praise. I, I just think of myself as a guy who, uh, you know, a, sort of a, a journeyman. You know, I get up, put my pants on, go to work, <laughs> write songs. Not only do I know, you know, your music from my own personal experience, but we've talked to 40 different artists on the show, and I would say probably half of them have brought up your name when I ask them about some of their favorite songwriters or some of the best songwriters. People like Gary Allen, wow. Colin Ray, T. Graham Brown, and Sarah Evans, they've all brought up your name. So I think... You're probably underplaying it a little bit, but the respect among your peers is, is certainly there. <laughs> well, thank you. I sure, I really appreciate that. I do. That's awesome. So, yeah, tonight's all about you, though, and just kind of getting to know you a little bit and uh, and, and certainly hearing the stories behind some of the, the great songs that you've written, that you've recorded, whether it was solo or with, with Foster and Lloyd. Um, really, I just want to start at the beginning with you and kind of talk about how uh, how you became who you are, born and raised, I guess, in, in Texas, right? Yes, sir. Del Rio, Texas. Uh, I made the I made the mistake of uh, of uh, titling my first solo record Del Rio, Texas, 1959, which is when and where I was born. So right. now I can't lie about my age anymore. <laughs> and, uh, um, but yeah, I was raised in Del Rio. It's a it's a tiny town, right on the Mexican border. Um, you know, uh, things were very different back then. I could I could literally ride my bicycle to Mexico. Oh wow! It was um, so, uh, you know, it really has, has, has changed a lot, but, uh, the, uh, you know, it was a great place to grow up as a, a, a ranching community and an air force community. And, um, my dad was a lawyer and my mom was a school teacher and, and, you know, small town lawyers in Texas don't make near what Dallas lawyers make, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, we did fine. And, um, and my dad played guitar and sang. And uh, not professionally, but, you know, the Saturday nights that were worth remembering were were the ones where, you know, somebody brought uh, the barbecue, somebody brought the potato salad, somebody brought the beer, and everybody brought an instrument. And they would sit in a circle on the back porch and play music all night long, you know. And I heard and it had three or four chords, and, and they liked it. They didn't care if it was a Hank, Hank Sr. song or an Elvis song or you know, Patsy Cline or, 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 you know, Frank Sinatra. I mean, it, it, if it was simple and it had a great melody and, uh, or a great story, you know, they loved it. And that was, that was my musical education. So that's where your love of music came from. But where did you, or, or when did you know that, uh, that songwriting was going to be a, a talent of yours? You know, I started writing songs. Um, I said, you know, in an interview once that I started in high school, but my mother has um, songs that I wrote at age seven um, in, in Sunday school, probably to some, you know, known melody like Jesus loves me or something. And, uh, so when I was in college, I had a band that was kind of nitty gritty dirt bandish. You know, we had, we had a banjo player, uh, you know, and I played acoustic guitar, but we had, you know, electric guitar and bass and drums and a fiddle player. And, 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 you know, we'd take country songs and, and rock them up and we'd take rock songs and country them up. And, uh, and you just, you know, playing for fun. And uh, a guy heard me and he said, you know, I don't know anything about, 
you know, the music business, but I got a buddy who's a producer in Nashville. And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, and I, I put my, I put my name on a matchbook and my name and my phone number in an empty matchbook from the bar that we were in. So he handed that to a guy named Brown Bannister, who was this young upstart producer who was uh, uh, making a big name for himself because he had produced uh, a young ingenue named Amy Grant, you know, who was, you know, her record was in every single girl's dorm room. (laughs) And I was like, damn, that's, that's a real, that's a real guy. So I, I called him and he heard four or five songs, you know, uh, I, I, you know, played them for him live with a guitar. And he said, you know, you need to have a serious discussion with your mom and dad about doing this for a living. And I said, you got to be joking. I said, does this mean any of these songs are hits? And he said, no, but, um, you know, they're better than what I wrote when I was 20. And, and I just got nominated for a Grammy. And, and, and I was like, oh, no. Okay. Wow. wow. So uh, I, I was off to the races. You know, that, that was my intro. And um, I spent a year between my junior and senior year in Nashville. Nothing happened. You know, I thought I was going to be the next Elvis time I was 21 and nothing happened, but I had the bug and I went back, finished college and then turned around and went right back to Nashville and spent about five years there struggling till I finally got signed to uh, Mary Tyler Moore's publishing company. And that was, I got signed as a staff songwriter and that's where I met Bill Lloyd. Yeah, that's where I was going next. It, you, you met up with Bill Lloyd, I guess. Was he a staff writer as well? He was. And the interesting thing was that you know, he was signed... They kind of had A&R people for people in Radio Land. That means artist and repertoire, but all that means is that you know you're kind of in charge of of the music that goes out. And on the publishing side, those people you know were called tune pluggers, and they would take your songs all around town or or ship them to L.A. or New York and try to you know get them recorded by other people if you were a staff writer. And Bill was signed to by one of the rock guys, and I was signed by uh, one of the country. Um, people. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think in, in our heads, you know, both of us admired what the other one did. And in our heads, you know, we're both going to say, well, if I write some country songs with Bill's going off, if I write some country songs with Radney, they'll, maybe they'll pay attention to my country songs, you know, that I write. And, and I'm, I'm by vice versa. I was going, well, if I write some rock songs with Bill, maybe they'll pay attention to some of the other rock songs. That I write. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, you know, I played acoustic guitar. He was a really good electric guitar player. We could sing harmony together. And we just started doing demos of these songs late at night and uh, after the studio was closed. And all of a sudden, you know, we had eight or ten together. And, and unwittingly, we had a sound, you know, because um, uh, that was kind of the formula. And um, we sent uh, – uh, Bill sent a cassette over – he had a buddy who was in the marketing department at who he'd gone to college with and uh, who was in the marketing department at RCA Records. And so he took it over there and, and just said, hey, man, this is what I've been doing. Because the guy had said, I want to hear what you're doing. And, you know, so he took it over there and it had eight songs on it that he had written with me. And, you know, and I think on the other side of the cassette, he had put like, some of the rock stuff that he was doing. And, you know, he told Randy, he said, you know, 
said, look, if, if uh, you know, if you think any of those country songs are, you know, something that, you know, one of your artists might be, you know, we do take it over to the A&R department and let those guys hear it. And Randy was like, sure. Well, man, he, that cassette went all on fire through the building. <laughs> you know, those guys just, you know, uh, they fell in love with that, that, uh, you know, those eight songs. And, and, the, and the funny thing was that they got in trouble the guy, um, one of the guys at A and R and Randy Goodman, who was um, who is now the head of Sony Music, mm-hmm. he, he they got in trouble, you know, because uh, Joe Galante at the time, who was the president of uh, RCA, hauled him in the office and said, you know, I did not, you know, hire you guys so you could try to get your drinking buddies, you know, signed to a record deal, <laughs> <laughs> and you know your college buddies, you know, and. And the A&R guy said, no, this is really, really good. you got to hear this. And so Joe said, well, yeah, it is really good. Will they play a showcase? You know? And so you know, we put um, the rhythm section from Bill's Rock Band and then Ricky Skaggs' pedal steel player and Steve Earle's guitar player. And then Bill, of course, on electric guitar and me on acoustic guitar. And we rehearsed for three days, and then we played for the staff at RCA. And, you know, Joe's words as he walked out was, it's all lawyers, guns, and money from here, boys. You know, <laughs> you know quoting that great song, you know. So it was, it was a pretty, pretty heady time. That's, that's really cool. What were your first impressions of Bill when you met him? Did you guys hit it off right away? or? Yeah, I mean, I thought he was, you know, he, uh, he's a super nice guy, you know. And, and I was like, this guy's really good, you know. And same thing, and, you know, Neither one of us had really good air conditioning in our apartment. We both <laughs> just had window units, you know, and they had great air conditioning down at um, the Mary Tyler Moore office. <laughs> so, so that summer, you're, you're sitting around, you know, it's like, it's like, hey, you want to write a song? It's like, sure, let's, you know, let's write something. And it worked. And then so it's like, let's write something else. So the, the third song we wrote was Sure Thing which was a number two record for us, I believe. Yeah. A uh, huge single for Foster and Lloyd. And my person, you know, over at the, at, at the company said, when we turned that in, you know, I get this note, that, you know, see me in my office. And I was like, dang, I've been here six months. I'm going to get fired. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I was worried. And, uh, and she said, uh, look, whatever you're doing, uh, Meredith Stewart was her name. She's a great human being. Um, whatever you're doing with that Bill Lloyd guy, you need to keep doing it. It's like you guys, I want you guys writing together at least every couple of weeks, if not every week, try to write a song for me, you know, and you keep writing the other stuff that you're doing on your own, you know, but there's something going on there and I want you to pay attention to it. It's like, okay. So I told Bill what she said. He's like, yeah, man, I agree. You know, this is cool. So that's kind of how it happened. Correct me if I'm wrong, too, but I think all this time while you guys are putting out hits, other artists are picking up your songs and getting hits out of them, too. I know, like, uh, Sweet, oh, yeah. Sweethearts of the Rodeo, for example, um, Since I Found You. That was before we were even signed to RCA. Oh, really? That's, that's how fast the RCA thing happened. Was like, literally six months after that single came out, we were signed to RCA and in the studio making our first record. And within nine months of that single coming out, we had Crazy Over You out as a single. It was lightning speed. You know, I went from being a completely unknown human being to anyone <laughs> other than to say, 
you know, do you want, you know, yes, I'm a songwriter, but would you like fries with that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> to, to having a, a number one record on the radio within a year. Was the Sweetheart to the Rodeo song, was that your first song that you'd ever had cut by another artist, or was there one before that? It was not the first I had ever had cut, but it was the first one that was ever hit on the radio. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, I had had a song cut by um, uh, a band, God, I can't even remember the, the name of the band, but it was the B-side to their 45 on the Mary Tyler Moore label. And it, it, it stunk, you know, it didn't, it didn't do anything. And, uh, um, but then I had also been writing with Holly Dunn and she and I wrote love someone like me, which became a huge record for her. It was a top five record for her. I think it was the follow-up to daddy's hand. Yeah. Um, so it, you know, all of a sudden, I'm having not just my song with the band I'm in on the radio, you know, but two others as as well, all within a year's time. And that, that, that was, it was just crazy, you know. Well, let, let's talk about some of the Foster and Lloyd songs. So you mentioned Crazy Over You. That was your first, like, really big hit with each other, uh, 1987. Mm-hmm. I mean, boom, you know, you guys have arrived at that point. Yeah, I mean, it, it was... Um, um, the first time, and and you know, um, uh, Whitburn's Billboard, you know, will tell you that it was a number three record, I believe. But uh, that's a lie because in Radio and Records, which was a different magazine that no longer exists, which is why you know you can't ever find out that um, it went number one, and it was the first time that a debut single for a um, a duo went number one, hmm. and. So the not the Everleys, not the Judds, not the Delmores, you know, Foster and Lloyd. Yeah. First time that you have a debut single go number one. So it was, I mean, we were flying to radio stations and and still meeting people when that thing was screaming up the charts. And I I totally expected so you know so much less. I mean, it was really overwhelming how how rocket hot that record was. Um, and it started and, and what happened was, is that both Bill and I had, had been played on the local college radio station at Vanderbilt. Well, that program director was playing crazy over you and, and the B side of the single. And that got, you know, they all all started talking on the phone with all these other colleges because that single was so popular with college radio. So all of a sudden, you know, the marketing department from, from RCA New York is going, we've got a, a, a song that you guys, that's, you know, going crazy on college radio. We don't, you know, but it's out of your office and we don't even know who are these people, you know, what is a Foster and Lloyd? (laughs) (laughs) And so they created a whole market. They hired that kid graduated from, uh, from Vanderbilt that year. And they hired her khaki usery and a team of three or four others to do nothing but market to college kids, which was really, really smart. And wow. uh, so, you know, it we end up playing a lot of college campuses because of that and, and, and selling a lot of records to them. You know, you strike while the iron's hot. So the next single, Sure Thing, we touched on that briefly. You know, that one is almost as big as Crazy Over You. And, and oh, yeah. You, you kind of kept pumping them out there, but I wanted to stop on Sure Thing for sure because that's a really good song and one of my favorites. Oh, thanks very, very much. You know, uh, I believe... I walked in with the title, but Bill was in the midst of uh, trying to, you know, 
convince a, uh, you know, a girl that, you know, he, I'm a good guy, you know, <laughs> I'm not a bad guy. You know? <laughs> and I know I'm a musician, but I'm really not a bad guy. You know? <laughs> and, and that, that was the, you know, the, the, the idea for the song, you know, and, and, um, it, it's pretty funny, it, you know, it, it, uh, the, the relationship did not last, but, but, <laughs> but the song sure did. So. Well, I know you and I actually share an affinity for um, Larry McMurtry, actually, who just passed away. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I was I was sad to hear that, but that also reminds me of one of your next singles in, in Texas in 1880. You know, his influence certainly shows up in in my prose. Um, I wrote a book of short fiction to go with my last record. Yeah, um, the it's an album called uh, "For You to See the Stars" and. There's a short story in the book to go with each song, you know, and vice versa. And my publisher noted, you know, when she first, I first, you know, was trying to get a publishing deal. My book publisher, you know, book publisher is trying to get a deal. And, and I had sent, you know, three or four things. And, you know, I think one of the first things out of her mouth, you know, on a phone conversation, said, boy, you really like Larry McMurtry. And I, I said, I said, yeah, I do. I said, is it, uh, you know, is it too derivative? She goes, oh, no, no, no. You have your own voice. You know, it's, it's not you. But, boy, I can sure, you know, I, I can sure hang my hat on a couple of authors that, that you obviously loved. And he was, uh, you know, I was a big fan. Texas in 1880 um, is one of the few solo rights that Foster and Lloyd did that I wrote on my own. And uh, the interesting thing is that it took me seven years to write it. Hmm. Um, I was leaving for Nashville, you know, um, for that first year of off from college. And that, that discussion with my parents was an interesting, <laughs> a very interesting <laughs> thing. You know, so telling your parents, I'm going to drop out of college so I can go be a songwriter in Nashville. <laughs> yeah, I bet that went over well. Yeah, that went over really well. <laughs> um, so, uh, but, um, but they actually, you know, my dad said, you need to learn a new term. And I said, what's that? He said, sabbatical. And I was like, what does it mean? He said, it means I'll hold your place in school for a year if you can get it. You, can, you convinced the dean to give you a sabbatical. He didn't think I could do it. And, uh, but I did. And, and you can take a year off. Hmm. And if you know, nothing happens, you got to go back to school. And I said, okay, that's a deal. And uh, so my Volkswagen is loaded. And my, mom, my mom's, uh, one of her best friends, uh, Sarah Winters, had made me a banana bread for the trip. And, uh, and she said to me, uh, she's a rancher's wife, you know, and she said, you know, Redden, you got to be careful about that, that music business. It's just like rodeo and it'll get in your blood and you can't get it out. And, and she should have known because she had two kids, you know, hauling horse trailers all over the country trying to ride <laughs> rodeo. Right. And, uh, I said, well, I'll be careful. And, you know, 90 miles into the 1200, I had to drive, I pulled over the side of the road and I wrote the first verse. Um, I can hear the wind whisper my name, tell me it's time to head out again. My horses are trailered and the lights are shut down. I'm long overdue for heading out of town. And I didn't know what it meant or what it would be. It was just an idea. And, uh, and I tried to write it on multiple occasions, tried to get other people to write it with me on multiple occasions, and nobody did. And then finally I was having a conversation, you know, with someone at a, at a party and a guy casually said, yeah, like where you're from, like, you know, Texas back in the 1880s. And, uh, you know, just talking about cowboy stuff. And, you know, I left the party and 
went home and wrote it. And the next step is pitching it to Bill and, and cutting it, I guess. Yeah. When we were, when we were, we were, you know, we had eight songs together that RCA liked, but you know, our whole job was like, okay, let's spend the next three months trying to beat them. And some of them we beat and, and we got to come up with 10, you know, to cut and uh, 10 or 11. And um, which we did. And, uh, but, you know, Texas in 1880 was one of the ones that I had submitted. And, uh, and Bill had written one by himself that I knew we wanted to do. And I wanted him to sing it, sing lead on it called Token of Love. That was a rockabilly song that I really loved. It was just a, you know, great, great song. And, uh, and also sounded like it could have been a hit single too. Um, it never was, it was never a single, I think, because I, and I think the only reason, uh, was because, they wanted to focus on, you know, the public knowing one guy's voice as the lead singer voice. And by the time we get to um, to later records, you know, we started putting out some things that that um, Bill sang on uh, as lead. And but we would always try to switch that up some too. Um, you know, we would go to unison or or on a bridge, or you know, Bill would sing the first two lines of a bridge. You know, we would play around with letting the change in voices be, you know, as much a part of the music as, you know, what the guitars were doing. Before we get into some of your uh, solo stuff, Radney, I want to talk uh, about a couple more hits with Foster and Lloyd. Uh, how about What Do You Want From Me This Time? Uh, that would have been the last release from the uh, the debut album there. Uh, mm -hmm. Also got at or near the top of the chart. And you, you talked yeah. about Billboard being a little bit different. I'm looking at Billboard number six, but it was probably higher than that on the others. You know, that was just Bill bringing a mandolin into a writing session instead of bringing a guitar. Hmm. And, uh, and I, I don't remember who said, and I don't think we had, we didn't have a title that day. And I think we wrote the verse um, before we finally got to, what do you want from me this time? And we went, Oh, there's your title. You know, cause you know, a lot of times we'd, we'd sort of, you know, backwardsly write things rather than from a title, we'd have a little snippet of some kind and we would just write till we had a title. And, and you would therefore, a lot of the songs, and I think it made us better songwriters writing that way, even though it was, it's, it's a really odd way to write most of the time. But what would happen is, you know, you got enough material for three and a half verses where you can't do that. It's, you know, there's just, it's supposed, the song's supposed to be three minutes long, you know, it's a, um, uh, you know, so it's, you know, a verse, chorus, a verse, a chorus, get out, you know, or, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, you tell stories much more quickly, but we had all these, um, all this other wordsmithing to steal from, you know, like you could, you know, go, oh, well, we can take this part from that verse and put it together with this, and that makes a whole much better verse altogether. So it made us overwrite, if that makes any sense. I can definitely see that. When those ideas get flowing, that's an easy trap to fall into. Faster and Louder, the the, the second album, which I love the play on words and the two L's and Louder. <laughs> the two L's on Louder, yeah. <laughs> Foster and Lloyd, Faster and Louder. Yeah, that's good. Um, and then Fair Shake uh, is the first single off that, and uh, it kind of follows suit, you know, ends up being a, being a big hit. Mm -hmm. That was written on the first time we met Guy Clark and the first time we wrote with Guy Clark. Oh, really? And, that, and, and we were in awe. I mean, that was... That's a that's a great day, and I'll I'll, I'll tell this story. So, um, 
So, you know, we get a call from uh, our manager and he says, Hey, are you guys familiar with Guy, Guy Clark? And I was, I immediately said, don't insult me. I'm from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, um, and Bill was like, yes, of course we are. And, and he said, well, he wants, he's heard there were all these bootleg cassettes of our album out when crazy over you was going up the charts on the radio because the album wasn't finished. And, uh, and, you know, uh, just, we just had a single out. But, but, you know, there was a bunch of songs, you know, floating around and Guy got a hold of some of them. And he's like, these guys are really good. I want to write with them. And, uh, and which was a huge compliment to us. And I was freaked out by it completely. And I said that I actually said on the phone, phone conference, I said, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> My our manager and Bill both went, why? And I said, because he's going to know that we don't know what the hell we're doing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> our manager laughed and said, that's okay. <laughs> he knows what he's doing. <laughs> I said, yeah, he does. So, so uh, um, we go and we, um, Guy had this office up in, you know, upstairs in this old Victorian building at the, at his publishing, at the publishing company that he was signed to. And, uh, and it was in the attic, and there was a big dormer window, you know, um, big, 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 you know, and uh, um, up there. And, you know, he had all these uh, cassettes and stuff and, you know, memorabilia and guitars and mandolins. It was just the coolest office you ever saw. And uh, so um, he had a phone up there that was a, an old black rotary dial phone. That the only thing it could do, you could dial any number you wanted, just dial one number, and all it would do is reach the receptionist at the, at the bottom of the of the building on the ground floor, you know, three stories down. <laughs> so if you needed an outside line, she had to call, make the call for you. And but you know, she could put a call through to um, guy. And so we're writing away, and it's going pretty well. And uh, it's a almost lunchtime, and so. Uh, the phone rings and you know the guy answers and is talking no yeah I'm writing with these guys Foster and Lloyd I was going pretty good I came over here about 3 o'clock I bet we'd have a song for you to no he puts his hand over the phone and says you guys mind if Towns Van Zandt comes by and we're going oh my <laughs> god okay one hero we're sitting in a room with writing a song and the other great hero <laughs> Texas songwriter who we are they think of as a, a masterpiece writer it's going to come over <laughs> and so you know i think for the next 10 minutes bill and i you know pretended to write you know we were so freaked out um and uh and then all of a sudden you hear on 17th avenue this big ruckus in the like you know racing engine and and beep 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 beep, beep, beep. we throw open the window and three guys stick their head out that huge window, and and uh, Count Van Zant is riding on an Italian Vespa scooter with a matching helmet, <laughs> and he wanted to show his buddy his new scooter, you know, and uh, um, so, and he's cutting donuts in the middle of the street <laughs> on this scooter, and so we all start laughing, and we all, you know, run down, and uh, uh, you know check out the scooter and then towns comes up. And at that point we didn't really get any more songwriting done that day. We, we, uh, 
We didn't finish that till the next day. We knew that our job was to keep these two master craftsmen telling stories on one another for the, you know, and, and, and on Jerry Jeff Walker and on Rodney Crowell and on and every, you know, everybody we, you know, knew and loved, uh, you know, as, as heroes to us, just get, keep them telling stories, you know, all afternoon. So that was a pretty good day. Yeah. That is a memorable session for sure. Um, so four more singles would come out from Foster and Lloyd before you guys ultimately decided to uh, go your own way. Was it just time? Was there was there a specific reason, or did you just kind of itch to do your own thing at that point? I, I no, I think it was. Um, there were several reasons. Um, I think one was that um, there had been a sea change in in the radio department at um, at RCA, and they felt like we were too edgy to um to get played on you know it was it was tough to get us played on country radio and we were having at the time we were having so much success at um at college radio that they wanted to move us to RCA's New York division and sign us to you know, a pop deal because we would, because of the college success, you know, one weekend we would be out opening for George Strait or Hank Jr. And the next weekend we might be out opening for, you know, Roy Orbison or Neil Young. I mean, it was, it was pretty cool, you know, and we cut festivals, we'd go on right before REM, you know, I mean, so, but I felt like I, man, I couldn't go pop with a mouthful of firecrackers to, to quote Buck Owens. You know, I just felt like that was, not something I could pull off and I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to go that direction, you know, and, and there was, it was kind of a little rock bit rocky time period in my first marriage. And, um, I thought I was going to just, you know, get off the road and try to get that put back together and, 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 you know, be a songwriter, a staff songwriter in Nashville. And, um, and all of those, you know, but I ended up in a, crazy situation because of so i mean that we bill and i parted that is all of that is to say that bill and i parted ways amicably and are still uh really good friends today you know as a matter of fact i know we're going to do uh we're both going to be at a songwriting festival in september and i think they're trying to horn squaggle us um into i do a set um one night he does a set another night and we do a foster and one set on the third night i'm totally amenable to that so there you go for those who aren't familiar, you you did reunite. I mean, you put another another album out around 2010 yeah. or so, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, it was a lot of fun. It it started because we were asked to do a um, a fundraiser for the Americana Music Association at the Bluebird Cafe, which is where you know Bill and I had both cut our teeth. Um, uh, you know, it, it wasn't as famous. But, you know, when we started out, it was just a, a, a bar and a strip mall for songwriters. You know, it just ended up that people like us and, you know, Garth Brooks and, and, and Alan Jackson all got signed, you know, record deals <laughs> in that little bar. You know? So we, we, were, we just said, hey, let's write a new song and let's work up the other song that we wrote with Guy, um, you know, um, uh, Picasso's Mandolin that he had recorded. And... And I said, yeah, that's a cool idea. We'll, you know, surprise everybody with a new song and, you know, we'll fill out the set. And we, so we got up, you know, and we had a, a band put together and Sam Bush, you know, was playing in the band. John Cowan was playing bass. It was pretty, pretty cool. Um, and uh, so 
that just became it's like, man, I had so much fun at this. Let's just let's start writing some more songs. And by about four or five songs in, we were like, let's just make another record. You know, let's yeah. do it. And uh, it felt like the right thing to do. We we went on tour for um, six months or so, you know, and played maybe 30, 40 gigs. And it was really fun. It was a great time and uh, a, a neat reunion, you know. When you guys did split up there around the late 80s, early 90s, um, mm-hmm. T. Graham Brown and Tanya Tucker covered uh, Don't Go Out With Him. And right. actually, I just had T. Graham on a, a few weeks ago, and he was kind of telling me about that. He was just telling me how he was a fan of that song already when they asked him to learn it. And he was like, well, I already know it because I'm, I'm such a big fan of that song. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were hanging out a whole lot with him uh, back then. There was a whole class of, of young artists who all kind of, that our first successes were in 86 and 87. Um, and, uh, you know, Highway 101, T. Graham Brown, uh, Steve Earle, um, the... Uh, Holly Dunn, you know, those people were all, uh, Pam Tillis, those people were all making hit records, you know, huge hit records. And, but they were just literally, you know, a year before had just been my friends who were struggling songwriters like, like we were. It just, we all hit it once. And it was really pretty neat to, you know, go to a festival and it's like, oh, wait a minute. Hey, let's go over to T. Graham's bus and say hello and, you know, drink a beer or have a bowl of cereal or whatever, you know. Probably a pretty cool feeling to have a couple of big stars like that record your song. Yeah, and it, it was a number one record. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's um, the 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 interesting thing was I always liked um, what was the chart. I don't think they have a chart anymore for it, but they used to have a chart that was the jukebox chart, and uh, and it was what was being spun the most on jukeboxes. Okay, and and that one was like number one for several weeks on the jukeboxes and and i always thought that was so cool you know it didn't have anything to do with radio it just had to do with with how many times somebody put a quarter into a jukebox and they you know they paid attention to that because there was a and you got royalties from that too right you got something it's a public performance so you got songwriting royalties from jukeboxes that that's so that's a cool thing to track what people are listening to when they're out trying to have a good time at a bar i mean that's right right you know it's like that 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 tells you something yeah you know so it was I was I always thought that was pretty cool. Now, Rodney, I actually knew you as a solo artist first. I was pretty young when you were with Foster and Lloyd. So when I really started paying attention to country music, I just knew you from, you know, Nobody Wins, which is my all-time right. favorite song of yours. I didn't know you you were with a duo before that until later on in life. But uh, I, I got to say, though, I loved your work as a solo artist, starting with uh, actually Just Call Me Lonesome came out before that. Yep. That was the first single off of the Del Rio record, and um, it, I, you know, it's interesting. It, uh, it, it, it was a top five hit, but just barely, like a number five record. And 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 a lot of stations, you know, you know, number ones fall out of recurrent status. For all you people who aren't radio geek heads, uh, recurrent is all the the songs that were a hit that they still play, you know, a year later or two years later or five years later and, or, or 20 years later, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, or even more in the case of nobody wins and, and just call me lonesome. And, you know, nobody wins never, it really has been sort of a significant thing to me that it's, and you can, you being ready will know what I'm talking about. 
it's rare for a song, uh, you know, 28 or nine years later to still be getting played on um, mainstream country radio stations. Yeah. It just is, that's just a rare thing. And, um, and nobody wins has never gone out of that status. Um, I can't tell you how many times I walk into a radio station that I've never been in before. And I'm like, and, and, and these days it's like, I'm not, am I on an Americana? Is this an, you know, I'm asking the question, is this an Americana station? Is this a mainstream country station? Is it a, you know, heritage country station? You know, what, what are we dealing with here? And amazing how many times if it's a mainstream country station, they say, Hey man, we still play nobody wins all the time, you know? And I was like, that they, they'll always say, man, that song still tests, you know, and um, that's a huge compliment. You know, I just, I, I, I think that's, to me, one of my prouder moments is that, and that, you know, like I said, uh, Just Call Me Lonesome went away, but it, in the last 10 years, it's had a revival. I don't know why uh, somebody picked it out, you know, probably, and, and, and said, I bet that still will some consultant and probably said that, that that still tests well and they tested it. It did. And so it's back in the game. And uh, the only reason I know any of this is, is, you know, from the, the ASCAP royalties. Well, and both of them are to me, the epitome of nineties country music. That's what I love about nineties country songs. Exactly like that. Uh, Nobody wins. For example, you co-wrote with Kim Ritchie. Um, mm-hmm. You know, is there a personal element that was kind of written in that song from? Warner? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we, I was, I was scheduled to write with her. I show up at her house about 10 o'clock in the morning. She hands me a cup of coffee and, you know, how you doing? And uh, I said, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, my wife and I had a, uh, you know, big fight last night you know i slept on the couch and she goes uh me and my boyfriend had a big fight too wow <laughs> that same thing and i said uh nobody wins that stuff <laughs> and she goes okay that's what we're writing today nobody wins you know that we just wrote about what was going on yeah that's that's very cool and how, how a song can just pick up steam from something as simple as that you know that's that's awesome yeah. Real quick on Easier Said Than Done, which would have been your, your next uh, big hit there from the Del Rio, Texas album. What can you tell me about that one? Uh, you know, I wanted to write a song about, uh, about betrayal. I, I knew that that was just a, you know, that was just, a, I wanted to, you know, I wanted a waltz. I wanted a really country song. And it was before I had a record deal, before I even knew what I was going to be doing, I, I had... I just had in my mind, you know, I want to write a song about betrayal. And I thought it was going to be, you know, about, you know, in my head when I thought I should write something like that, I thought it was going to be the accusative thing. And I, as I got into the, the idea of it, um, I was like, no, it's better if I'm the bad guy, you know, it's better if I've, you know, I've cheated on someone or if I've lied to someone, you know, yeah. how does that, you know, how do you regain any trust after that happens? You know, it's easier said than done. And so um, that's how it came about, you know, is that me just searching for, um, the, I, I guess one of the things I, I should probably tell your audience is that after I left Foster and Lloyd, I ended up in a 
no-win situation with RCA. I was um, in limbo on their status, and then because I was in limbo with them, I was in limbo with my publishing company, BMG. And neither one would pay me any advances nor any royalties. And so I went from making a lot of money to making nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went out on the road with Vince Gill and with Mary Chapin Carpenter and rode the bus with them, just like a sideman. They were both doing theaters at the time. And, uh, and I would go and I was the acoustic opener. And, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, the songs had to really be something and the delivery had to really be something if I was going to play a new song, you know, and I'd play songs that I had written for other people that had been hits and, you know, Foster and Lloyd songs. But, um, so they had something familiar, but I was always trying to like, let me throw in a couple of new songs, you know, and, uh, test them out in front of an audience and see how, and so, you know, it was during that time period that I was going, let me just, that, that audience inspiration is what made me go searching to write songs. And I wasn't turning any of them in to anybody because, you know, I, I couldn't, I was just, I was, it was a mess. And so it took about a year for me to um, get out, get all of that unraveled. And I basically got dropped from RCA and they got dropped from my publishing company. And then, um, you know, two or three months later, I kind of, you know, walked in with a stack of songs to the Bluebird Cafe and the guy, I had invited my former manager who was then head of Arista Records, Tim Dubois, to come out to the show. And he came out and he you know, I played my set. He he came backstage the moment I got off stage, and he shoved me into the kitchen of the Bluebird Cafe because you're going to get a whole bunch of record deal offers. I just want to be the first one in mind. Wow! And, uh, and that's how I ended up on Arista Records. And that's what spawned the solo career. Then that that's what spawned the solo career. Yeah. And that and 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 that's and and that night, I played. Nobody wins. Easier said than done. And. um not just call me lonesome. That's the one I hadn't played, um, hadn't written yet. Hmm. Um, I got written after I got signed. Um, but yeah, I, that basically I had eight out of the ten of those songs I played that night at the at the Bluebird, and that's pretty much what got me the record deal. Uh, and you talk about the hits that you've written for other artists. We've touched on some of them already. Um, I never knew until recently when I talked to Colin Ray. You wrote mm-hmm. you wrote one of my favorite Colin Ray songs. Anyone else? Oh wow! Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, I I wrote that about my wife. You know, um, she has a very when she's happy about something, she always looks a little mischievous. She always has a Cheshire Cat grin, you know? <laughs> and that's literally that started. That song started with me writing down something that I had said to her. I said, you know, you can hide behind that Cheshire Cat grin. <laughs> Got a cat grin, but I know what I know what the truth is, you know, and uh, and so that's how that ended up in uh, in the song. Anyone else? So, yeah, absolutely love that song. Song, you know, about a woman sticking with you through the through the hard times, through the hard times, right? Being, right? Through through thick and thin, right? For better, for worse, and then being rewarded for it, you know, at the end. So, also, you wrote a couple of songs for Keith Urban. I guess that was a pretty big yeah. name. <laughs> yeah, a couple couple of really big hits for him. Yeah. Know? Um, raining on Sunday, you know, I, I, I had, I had made a record, uh, 
a third record for Eric. The oddities are that, you know, I, um, I made two records on Arista Nashville. And once again, there was a sea change at the radio department. And, um, and I went through after my second solo record, um, which didn't have any success at radio on it, really. Um, I was going through a divorce and then I was falling in love with a, 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 a new woman. And th- this whole thing lasted a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, um, right after she and I got married, um, we, uh, I ended up in a custody battle over my son moving overseas. So I had been writing all these songs and just, I had, I told because of the custody battle, I, I told Arista, I just said, I need to go on hiatus. I'm not going to be able to do anything for six months. I gotta, I gotta, you know, I gotta figure out I can know how to how to be a dad. Yeah. And uh, you know, after all of that settled down, I walked in with this pile of songs to Tinderbois's office, you know, and played them for him. He goes, These are really great songs. He said, They're not country though. And I said, Well they are. he said, Yeah, but Rennie, they're not and he said I said, Yeah, but I'm I can't, you know, I'm not a pop artist. And he said, You're right, he said, but there's a new division that we're starting down in Austin. And you know, I, I want you to talk to him. I said, okay. You know, and so uh, I did, and an album called See What You Want to See was born out of that. And both I'm In and Raining on Sunday were on that album. And um, it maybe two or three years after it was out, um, I was playing a, a Writers in the Round thing in, uh, in, in Nashville, and there was a young guy named Keith Urban sitting right down front and he had had the one hit single for the black top end, mm-hmm. you know? And I said, Hey man, I haven't heard your album yet. I said, but that black top song is awesome. And you know, he, after the show and, and, uh, and I, you know, I knew he's a great guitar player and I knew he's you know, a great singer. And, and, uh, uh, cause I had seen him before and never met him. But, you know, there was, he and the, his, the band he was in, the ranch, um, would always play this little tiny bar called Jack's Guitar Bar. And, um, and Kim Ritchie and I would go over there and, you know, split a pizza and, and drink some beer and listen to the band. And uh, so, you know, at that thing, I told him, and he goes, listen, man, see what you want to see is one of the most influential records on me. And I, it's, it's one of my favorite records of all time. I said, wow, thanks very much. He goes, I'm going to cut raining on Sunday. And I'm, in my head, I'm going, yeah, there's no way that a, a, a label is going to let you do that, son. <laughs> it's just too weird. I'm telling you right now. And I didn't say it. I said, oh, thanks very much. You know, and, and, and uh, wow, you know, how cool, you know. And, and so then, sure enough, six months later, he calls me up and he says, hey, come down to the studio. I want you to hear something. I was like, okay. So I, and he played the, they had just cut the tracks. Um, and I got to hear it before it was even mixed. You know, so it was pretty cool. Well, and, and the last one I want to ask you about is uh, Real Fine Place to Start. Now, I haven't talked to Keith Urban, but I have talked to Sarah Evans. And uh, and she told me that, I, I think she said that was one of her favorite songs that she's ever recorded. Um, and, wow. and, and that I think you wrote that for her, right? Or you or maybe you recorded yeah. it first? I, I, I wrote it with, I wrote it with uh, George Dukas and I, uh, and... I, uh, I had I had put it on an album 
that was, you know, out in, in the Texas world and in the Americana world. And uh, I was writing with Sarah Evans for, you know, in hopes of getting something recorded for her next record. And because uh, she had just, you know, said, I'm a fan, man. You know, and I was like, yeah, I'll write with you. Heck yeah, you great singer, real good songwriter. <laughs> and you sell lots of records. I mean, nuts not to write songs with you. And so, <laughs> um, so we were writing and she was going on and on about how much she liked my last record. And as she was talking about it, I realized she was talking about the record before my last record. And I said, well, I've got another record since then. And she goes, oh, okay. So I literally went home after the writing session. Next day, I pulled a CD out of my basement and, uh, you know, drove out to her house and stuck it in her mailbox and, 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 uh, and just drove on. And uh, about two weeks later, she calls me up. And she goes, that first song on that album, uh, real fine place to start. Has anybody cut that? And I said, no, ma'am. I said, but you can. <laughs> she said, yeah, I'm gonna. <laughs> I said, okay, great. And it ended up being the title of her album yeah. and the title of her tour. I ended up going out and uh, I, I went out and did solo acoustic opening theaters for her probably, oh man, I bet I did it a dozen times. Um, and it was really fun. And uh, it was it was pretty great. We we love Sarah Evans. She's from our state here. Oh, she's, oh no, yeah. she's a homegirl. Yeah. You can ride around there, isn't she? She was one of my first guests I've had on. Yeah, yeah. She had good things to say about you too, Rodney. Um, so what I love about my job is I get to talk to people like you and, and hear these stories, and you've been an absolute pleasure to talk to. Really diving into these stories, I I, I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate you doing this. I, I do want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit more about your, your book and, uh, and, and your latest album, which actually are both called the same thing, For You to See the Stars. I think it's been out a couple years now, but uh, really good stuff. Yeah. Oh, thanks very much. You know, um, I uh, I had I had written some prose, but mostly it was like, you know, I wrote a songwriting article for Guitar Player Magazine, and then you know I'd write a uh, I, I use a lot of alternate tunings as a guitar player, and I wrote a whole um, uh, thing for uh, you know Acoustic Guitar Magazine about you know, alternate tunings. And then, you know, I'd, so I'd written some stuff like that, but never any fiction, you know? And I ended up, um, I got bronchial pneumonia and I ended up coughing my voice gone at, at laryngitis, you know, hmm. because of it. So I was really sick and I was not able to speak for six weeks. And then I had to go through about six weeks of vocal therapy to get back to speed to go out and tour again, you know, and, and, or even just work as a songwriter, you know? And so I was really freaking out. Um, so, you know, cause it, it, it wasn't like they said, Oh, you're going to do this for 12 weeks and you're going to be fine. I would go for a week of no talking, go back to the Vanderbilt voice center and they would go, you still can't talk. And I was like, so you go three weeks into this, I'm going nuts. You know, yeah. I'm really freaked out. And, uh, so I, I wrote a note to my wife. I said, I'm going to write a short story, um, you know, just to give myself something to do um, besides, you know, watch movies um, and, and read, you know, to give myself something to do so I keep them going crazy. And she took a pen out of my hand and wrote on the same piece of paper, you should because you're driving me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote it and, and, and I handed it to her when I got through and she, 
she was a, a music journalist for many, many, many years and a magazine editor as well. And so, you know, she read it and she said, honey, this is really good. I mean, this is publishable. You need an edit, but it's, it's really good. And I was like, and, wow, okay. She said, you need to keep writing this way. You know, just figure it out, keep writing short stories. And so, you know, the first two, two started as something inspired by a song, you know, and then a third one, I just had the idea for the short story um, about a little kid listening to the radio under the covers with, on a transistor, you know, in the 50s. And then I thought, I'll, I'll just write a song to go with it. And then, ding, the idea happens. Like, I could put out an album and put out a book of short stories at the same time. And, uh, and that was my first foray into it. And uh, I found a great independent publisher that w wanted to, you know, work with me. I had, I had several, you know, conversations with, with major publishers, and they all said the same thing. You know, th these are really great. Call us when you have a novel because we can't make any money at short fiction. And I kept going in my mind, but I can make money at short fiction if you will, you know, understand the concept here. I have a record to put out too. So, um, uh, Working Title Farm uh, the, uh, is uh, the name of the imprint. Uh, it's part of R Rivers Edge Media, and um, I'm the. I was the first. They 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 created that uh, that. Um, imprint under Sherry Smith's, um, you know, uh, guidance, uh, at, you know, just to put this out because it was both a, a music and a literary project. And uh, it's been one of the most successful things um, I've done. If you told me that I was going to sell tens of thousands of books when I was a struggling songwriter, in, you know, in Nashville, ten Tennessee, I would have said, you know, you got to, you're, you're joking. You're kidding me. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> you know, that's not possible. What's the best way for people to pick that book up, Rodney? You know, you obviously can get it from, from your standard fair places like uh, Amazon. But if you go to RadneyFoster.com, they come autographed. Oh, and cool. So, yeah, I, I autograph uh, every book that goes out and I autograph the CDs that go out as well. And uh, my wife during COVID is actually put a, a special, like, you know, if you email us when we do it, we'll even personalize them. So, yeah. um, and that's been kind of cool. It's, it's kind of been an uptick in sales because people are, have been, you know, stuck at home yeah. Yeah. Uh, so much. And, uh, and so it's, it's a pretty neat project and it, it's been a real joy to get to share. I'm, I'm, uh, um, I'm actually, uh, you know, in September, I think, I think it's in September. Um, I'm playing a uh, a honky tonk in Texas one night, and I'm playing a uh, I'm the keynote speaker at a book festival the next day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Such is the life of Randy Foster. <laughs> from, from one end to the other. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I encourage folks to check it out. For you to see the stars, uh, RadneyFoster.com to to get that get that autographed copy. Radney, I didn't expect to talk to you for an hour, but it was such an easy conversation. I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate you spending so much time with us today and, and, and letting your fans kind of hear the insight to some of these songs and, and all these stories. Well, thanks very much, man. It's been a pleasure to do it.